Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Wandering peoples past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Emma Kilty, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking to Frank Pascal. Frank is an expert on the law of AI, algorithms and machine learning. He is Jeffrey D. Forcelli, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School and Affiliate Fellow at Yale University's Information Society Project and a member of the American Law Institute. He is co-editor-in-chief at the Journal of Cross-Disciplinary Research in Computational Law based in the Netherlands and a member of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence on Automated Decision-Making and Society. His book, The Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information, has been recognized as an important study on law and political economy of information. His new laws of robotics, defending humanity, human expertise in the age of AI, rethinks the political economy of automation to promote human capacities as the irreplaceable center of an inclusive economy. He has published numerous articles on law and technology. So today, Frank and I will be talking about essays written by American anthropologist Clifford Geertz. The links to the essays we refer to will be included in the show notes. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Frank Pascal. So my first question for you, Frank, is what got you interested in Clifford Geertz's work? Thanks so much, Emma. And it's a real honor to be here. I really enjoy, have enjoyed the podcast and um, just to be engaged uh, in questions of social science and thinking about the nature and purpose of social science uh, with you is just uh, terrific. So thanks for the invitation. And to start with, in terms of my interest um, uh, in the area, I mean, I spent many years developing a critique of the misuse of algorithms in several areas in the black box society. And in that work, that was really a work of criticism that had something of a reformist edge. And I kept with that sort of theme of legal reform in uh, the more recent book, New Laws of Robotics, um, thinking about trying to assure the proper use of algorithms. And I think both the black box society and New Laws of Robotics, they partook of a tradition of law as engineering or law sort of looking at the world, seeing problems and thinking, how can the law solve the problem? Um, and I think what I've also, but I've also had this sort of leitmotif in my work of thinking about how do we look at the world not as a problem to be solved, but as something to be better understood. And um, I pursued that in a couple of works, one uh, called The Algorithmic Self, um, uh, and in some other more recent, uh, more popular writings. And I'm, I'm interested now in, in developing more of a sense of uh, how non-algorithmic thought happens. 
Because I think at the core of a lot of the problems that I addressed in those first books was an over-enthusiasm among some in the tech community to address problems as you know, engineering problems, to, to address social, political, cultural problems as political pro as as technical problems. And I really want to think of it more in terms of like, how do we interpret the world better before we try to change it? And I think particularly interpretive social science is really helpful there. And I think of Geertz as a leading anthropological exponent of interpretive social science. There's many others like Robert Bella in sociology or Charles Taylor in, in philosophy, um, um, you know, and I would think of Arlie Hochschild, many, many other uh, thinkers there um, doing interpretive social science. But I thought particularly um, someone who came really close to developing a deep theory of it was Geertz. Although ironically, he would also, I think, probably chastise me for seeing him as a, sort of a theorist or someone trying to find transubstantive laws, you know, of uh, interpretive social science. But that that is is sort of the sense of, of where how this journey is, is has worked for me. It's particularly also just part of a a more general effort I've been making as a, as a lawyer who engages with the social sciences to bring to the attention of the core of the U.S. legal community the resources of interpretive social science. Uh, because right now, economics um, uh, is really dominant. And um, I think economics and computer science are seen as sort of the models to which law should aspire. And I think there's many other models, including the, the work that Geertz has done. Fantastic. So... What I'm kind of hearing is the work of Geats is something that you want to bring to tech designers and engineers to kind of inform their work. So it's not been coming from that kind of tech as solution, engineering solutions, rather start using culture as that kind of starting point. Is that, would that be correct? That is correct. I mean, I think I would start first with the lawyers, because I think ironically, even though the, you know, in some of the work that Geertz has done, um, like in his stores lecture at Yale Law School, he talked about the kinship between anthropology and law. That was almost 40, 50 years ago. And I think over those 40 or 50 years, the law has drifted toward thinking about things as being much more, a, a, to aspire to be like a natural science or like engineering. And so I, I'm starting with the lawyers, but you're right to say that I do hope to reach those making the technology as well. And I think that some of the best stuff in fairness, accountability, and transparency and machine learning is is doing that as well. Like I think of a recent paper by Willie Agnew and, and Abeba Burhane and Ria Kaluri and, and, and perhaps others on, on values in machine learning um, that I think really you know goes in that direction as well, trying to explicate the, the culture of machine learning and, and what its highest values are to help us better understand the products that come out of that community. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like as, as an ethnographer, that's something I'm very interested in is studying. And that's the study I'm doing right now is with tech designers themselves and understanding how they view trust, trust as a starting point in the tech that they design as an, and also as an endpoint, um, not as something that's relational, but something that's transactional. And that obviously feeds into a lot of the not legal, but kind of policy work that's coming out of Europe around AI and. I ask you to, to explicate that a little, because I'd love to hear more about it. I mean, is your sense that Trust is sometimes seen as a mark of authority that does not need explanation. Is that part of what trust is or are there other senses of it? Yeah, for me, trust is this output, not an outcome to 
to aim for in in a sense it's becoming almost the new ethics like AI and ethics washing is you know this kind of burgeoning area of of study and and colleagues of mine are doing some great work in that area and I think trust is emerging trust and trustworthiness are kind of emerging as this new kind of stamp of approval if if the technology or can be proven as trustworthy it can be then sent out into the public but it's it's taken as this kind of endpoint not as trust as something that is dynamic and ongoing and built and relational. Oh, that's great. I think that sounds like such a fascinating way of framing some of these issues and the rise of the trust rhetoric. And it reminds me a bit of the role of authority in law. You know, it's sort of like when you can say, well, there that's the authority. And it sort of ends arguments often when it really should be the beginning of arguments. So, yeah. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like just thinking about the audience, a lot of us aren't versed in law and legalese. What what do you mean by authority? Authority would be a sense that a an entity or institution that applies and articulates legal norms, that we respect it not because we agree with their reasoning, but because they occupy a position of power and a position, and we must respect them because of their authority as opposed to their reasoning. And it comes up a bit with respect to, in one of the courses I teach, which is, which is administrative law, um, there's a concept of deference to government agencies. And what courts have done over the past several decades is they've often said, well, even though we would not interpret the law the way that the agency does, or we would not come out in the same way in this dispute as the agency does, we must, must defer to them, defer either to their, and, and it's partly because of their expertise, partly because the agency is staffed by political appointees who are democratically elected. So that's a good thing, you know, in the sense that there has to be some level of respect and deference for those executing and applying the laws in government agencies. But it can go too far sometimes. Sometimes there's this concept of authority where it's just like, well, respect their authority and don't ask any more questions. <laughs> there's a great saying from a U.S. Supreme Court justice where he says, we are not final because we are infallible we are infallible because we are final, right? And, and I think that's a really interesting sort of way to, I mean, it's amazing to think of someone making that sort of a claim about the institution they're part of, right? That they're they're infallible essentially because to reverse a Supreme Court decision generally requires um, two thirds of Congress plus three quarters of the state legislatures to reverse them. So essentially when they say something, it's it's done, it's over. I mean, with respect to the constitution, they are final and they are quite powerful in that way. And so that's an example of authority. I think that they're, they have this authority, not necessarily because we agree with their reasoning, particularly some of the more recent Supreme Court decisions, um, which I have become sort of famous worldwide uh, in terms of their sort of shock value. But I think because it's so hard to overturn them, they are, they are essentially final and in that way authoritative. Yeah, that's really interesting to think through that example, given the work that Geats has done writing around religion and culture. I'm just thinking about your the term deference, I think, could slip so easily into worship and around that kind of absolute moral authority that the church used to hold. Um, I'm just going to go to one of the quotes you sent through to me, just thinking about the problem of election denialism. Um, oh, Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just going to read it out quickly. So just the last bit, it is a sense of the really real upon which the religious perspective rests and which the symbolic activities of religion as a cultural system are devoted to producing, intensifying, and so far as possible, rending inviolable by the discordant revelations of secular experience. Given where you are located and where you do, you know, most of your research, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more to that, especially around election denialism. 
Yes, I'm so glad we were beginning here in terms of our exploration of some of the Gertzian ideas and, and about different ways of thinking. Because I think, and, and just to back up a bit, I mean, that quote is part of a larger quote that I hope we can maybe post or on, on the website or, or share in some way that, that is trying to distinguish religion, the religious perspective from the commonsensical, the scientific and the aesthetic perspectives. And it's sort of, a, and in part, it's saying, if we were to really think about what religion does, it's it's different than art in that it's not, and here's here's a quote again of, of Geertz, instead of affecting a disengagement from the whole question of factuality, which Geertz attributes to art, and deliberately manufacturing an air of semblance and illusion, religion deepens the concern with fact and seeks to create an aura of utter actuality. And I think that is so interesting to consider in light of the hardening of political perspectives um, in many parts of the world, but I think particularly in the US and particularly in the in its pathological form in recent forms of election denial, right? And we've seen many of uh, the rise of, for example, um, a majority of House Republicans refusing to certify the election in 2020, um, uh, people being all over the country, um, candidates running on a platform that Joe Biden should not be the actual president, should step down because of uh, the idea that there's there was some uh, skullduggery or some problem uh, with the counting of the votes. And most recently, I mean, um, Donald Trump tweeting things about the election in Arizona, completely baseless fabrications about, you know, there being a, a conspiracy or some uh, bias against uh, Republicans uh, there in the 2022 elections. And what I find, it, this is a really difficult problem. And I think it's it's something that, you know, to me, marks the unique fragility of U.S. democracy right now, as opposed to many other places where there are there are people like Georgia Maloney out there, uh, Viktor Orban, others, you know, who I think are quite frightening avatars of an authoritarian future in what were uh, democratic countries or have been democratic countries. But I have not seen in, in many other areas or maybe even other, any other country this level of denial of reality. Right of denial of um, the of votes, you know, of, of of actual votes that have been duly counted, of saying, well, I I just don't believe it. And when Geertz talks about the symbolic activities of religion, devoted to rendering inviolable by the discordant revelations of secular experience, um, a cultural system, that I think is really fascinating. And and I think a lot about it in terms of like. How does one, as say uh, one committed to liberal values or one, a member of the opposing party, the Democratic Party, or, or what have you, um, how does one respond? Right? Is is the process of response one of trying to develop um, one's own religion to sort of say that like a religion of democracy um, that that would sort of say something along the lines that like no matter what you know that the one must believe in what has been represented and that to not believe in such is disqualifying with respect to one's say a place in public life are, are there other or does it call for another mode of thought another mode of of response and i think it's really helpful you know to sort of parse out how forms of what might be seen as the more troubling difficult cult-like aspect of religious belief can either become part of a system of political ideology. And of course, we also are going to, I hope, talk about his uh, ideology as a cultural system too. I, I should bracket all that by saying, or also, you know, to be properly Gertzian and balanced here, to say that, I mean, I think there's much in that description of religion that is quite heartening 
and 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 quite sort of like affirmative of its value within um, intellectual discussions. But I think it also helps us see it helps us see the the most difficult and trying aspects of religious perspectives and also their frequent importance, um, clarifying nature and revelatory character as well. So that's why I like it. I mean, that's, I connect particular parts of it to some tough times that the U.S. is going through, but I also see it as being part of a more general appreciation of, say, the religious perspective with alongside commonsensical scientific aesthetic uh, perspectives. It sounds like Gates is is giving you hope. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it it is true. You know, I mean, I think it's just it's very clarifying. You know, because I, I feel like it's it helps in the sense of deciding where to fight one's battles or where to think. You know, because I I see people sort of for a long time there's been this effort to like fact check and correct things. You know, and and I think it's good on some level to make sure there's a there's a good record out there and i saw some great examples of fact checking today you know some of elon musk's false claims about different aspects of twitter's business being fact checked online um, by his own company or um but or, or by others who work there but i also feel like being able to recognize when someone has a cultural system that has been rendered inviolable to discordant it can't be sort of shaken by discordant revelations of secular experience that's really important, you know, and I think it's a very important thing to be able to recognize and then move on from that. So, yeah. Absolutely. There's a, there's a kind of micro example of that in, in the States that I'm really, really fascinated with it at the moment. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Nixium cult. No, no. Oh, I, I will, I will send you a link. There's also um a, oh, I don't know if it's on Netflix or binge. It's on one of the 20 streaming services, but there's a, a docuseries of unpacking this cult. And while there is a plethora of docuseries looking at cults at the moment, since we seem to be having a bit of a moment, we've moved on from serial killers to cults. This one does a really good job as, as someone who was taught in the religion of the sociology of religion uh, in breaking down how cults operate how they are created, how they change thought, how they shape thoughts, how they create semi-closed communities and then shift them into closed communities with closed systems of thought and that real apex of authority. It's really scary and a really fascinating part of human society and behaviour that I've long held a, a bit of a fascination for. I wanted to bring that up because I wanted to circle to that initial uh quote uh, from Gates's work in the interpretation of cultures that we both really enjoy, um, where he talks about the concept of culture um, as something as semiotic, and he, drawing on Marx, talks about people as suspended in webs of significance that they themselves have spun, um, and culture is uh, is these webs. So the analysis of it is not to kind of search for this experimental and uh, disinterested science, but one that's interpretive and in search of meaning. I think that's what you're leaning towards um, in in this shift in kind of uh, conversation, bringing uh, the humanities and social science into into law. Um, so how does understanding culture as a web of significance? How is that helpful in a legal setting, particularly around law and technology? Excellent question. Yeah, that's bringing it to this this core research area of mine. And I'll give a concrete example um, that I think could help us to work through this very clarifying dichotomy between, on the one hand, experimental science in search of, law, of a law, and the other one, an interpretive one in search of meaning. And Let's take, for example, uh, the problems that have been faced by big tech companies who are challenged uh, on competition law or antitrust grounds. 
Um, the way that the antitrust law has developed in the US um, with respect to these questions has become very scientistic in the sense that the aspiration has become, we should only break up a company if we can have some level of certitude that the breakup would lead to an increase in consumer welfare. And there's this idea that like consumer welfare could somehow be measured, like we measure the volume of water in a lake. We could measure the welfare of consumers um, hypothetically after say, we could separate YouTube from Google search or separate Instagram from Facebook, from WhatsApp or something along those lines, right? And there's a whole cottage industry of econometricians that have developed different ways of extrapolating from say ex uh, quasi-experimental data or other forms of data say, what would be the cost to you um, or what would be the, the, the loss to, to society in general? Um, if, for example, you know, you didn't have all your, connect, your friends connected from Facebook to Instagram or what have you, or you couldn't get advertisements based on data from the two services seamlessly integrated as opposed to from two different services or whatever it might be, whatever the hypothetical might be. I think, though, that, that really most of the extrapolations there are not scientific, they're pseudoscientific or scientistic, right? I, I just don't think there's any way of extrapolating the level of satisfaction, wealth, um, whatever your utilitarian criteria is um, in a world, say in 2030, where there are distinct services for photo sharing and social, keeping track of social friends and doing uh, the sort of communication that people do on WhatsApp, et cetera, that sort of like Insta messaging calls, et cetera, on WhatsApp. We just don't know. We just really can't know that. But what we could know, I think, is we could think about how do we interpret the role of, say, Facebook or Google in contemporary society and the play, way that it has played a role in our culture, our politics, et cetera. And is that similar to prior large firms, particularly, say, media firms that have been broken up or where mergers have been presented? Right? And I think we could look to the past and say, well, there are some situations where the courts decided to keep a large, say, vertically integrated media conglomerate together, or, or sorry, vertically integrated media corporation together, or a conglomerate firm together, um, and, and the reasons why they did so, and other situations where they decided to break them up. And we might find particularly apt analogies. And I think like Tim Wu does this in his book, The Curse of Bigness, Zephyr Teachout does in, in some of her work. Um, there's a number of legal scholars that sort of go down this road. And so I think that sort of is, is, is one way into the problem of thinking about this. I mean, I can give other examples from other, say, uh, controversies in technology law, but I think it, it shows a real need for that. Now, of course, the people on the, on the, on the law-like side, the scientific slash scientistic side, are going to say, well, that doesn't give entities any sense of certainty as to whether they'll get broken up or not. And so therefore, it should be invalid as a mode of interpretation. To which I would say, you know, we can't, the world changes constantly. No one has certainty with respect to many legal norms um, that are vital to our society. And so I think that you know, it is important to allow that level of flexibility um, in law enforcers and others. And part of that flexibility can be afforded by looking at, say, explicating the meaning of a corporation's dominance in society. And just to give one other example, Lena Khan has this brilliant article called Separation of Platform from Commerce. And the idea of the article is she looks back to rules in the US that kept banking companies 
from engaging in, from owning a lot of commercial entities. Because the idea was that the function of funding entities was so important that if you allowed banks to both fund entities to decide when they got credit and to buy those entities, that that could just create this huge concentration of the economy where just big banks would own everything, right? So there had to be a separation between their commercial function and their credit granting function. And then she says, well, let's apply that to Amazon and Google and Facebook because their role in helping people find what they want is similar to helping people fund what they want, right? Well, that, that funding finding thing is something I developed in Black Box Society. But I mean, I think she really developed a, the legal analogy there, which I thought was just absolutely fantastic. Um, and to me, it's it's revelatory. The separate, to move from the separation of banking and commerce to the separation of platforms from commerce is a revelatory move that she backs up with 100 pages of closely reasoned legal argument as to what we should do and is infinitely more um, useful, I think, to decision makers than an effort to figure out uh, what will be the overall consumer surplus or consumer welfare of letting these these large companies stay as they are or, or breaking them up over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Just for the benefit of, of our listeners, would you mind giving just a concise definition of antitrust laws? Sure. So in antitrust law, the main purpose of antitrust law is to, at least in the, in the US antitrust law, is to ensure that firms are not able to abuse their position and reduce output or increase prices or reduce quality because they have, say, uh, own a certain uh, percentage of market share. And so part of antitrust law can be, say, merger review. So if two firms, if a fir one firm wants to buy another firm, and let's say there are only four, fir four firms in the market that have, say, 99% of the market share, imagine that the first firm has 50% and the second firm has 25%, and then the last firm is 24%. Um, if firm one tries to buy firm two, antitrust law might prevent that because it would say, wait a second, if we move from three firms to two firms, it's really easy for the remaining two firms to sort of coordinate, even if it's tacitly coordinating what they do and raise prices, you know? And you can see that sometimes with airlines, like, you know, if there's only a, like two airlines serving a, a community, one might raise its price and then the other might just raise its price to a little below what the other price is, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you see this sort of like maybe tacit collusion or something like that. So that would be one example. I mean, there, there are other, many other aspects of, of um, there's uh, antitrust cover, law covers things like um, cartelization, like you, you have firms agreeing among themselves to uh, keep prices high. That is uh, uh, often criminally liable under antitrust law. There's also civil penalties for other forms of violations of antitrust law. Uh, there's monopolization where a firm might try to buy up all of its rivals, um, and that, that's be another issue. Abuse of dominant position um, where it tries to charge, uh, uh, say, a lot more to certain entities that it wants to knock out of, uh, of the co competition. So it's in general sort of a, a law of commercial morality. It's trying to ensure that there's certain a certain morality to commerce that keeps um, large firms from becoming so dominant that they um, are able to abuse their position and raise prices, lower output, lower quality. You mentioned before that you have some other examples of controversies related to that. Do you have any like antitrust controversies that are related to AI or robotics? Because I know that's like, that's kind of a key topic of your other book. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that th this is, there's a really interesting question that's arising now in antitrust. And this is a close question, I think, which is a question of whether allowing certain firms to keep becoming bigger and bigger and having more and more data 
is that essential to the progress of AI? Or is that merely a mark of an effort to raise prices and to corner markets that is stifling innovation? Right. So one side would say that AI may be creating a situation of natural monopoly. And antitrust law doesn't want to go after natural monopolies because the idea is, well, the more data a firm has, the better it can develop its algorithms and the better it can deal with the world and the more sensors it can buy, the more it can navigate through the world, et cetera. So that's one way of looking at things and to say that we need these massive firms. Another way of looking at it would be to say, as say, and, and some of these large firms are buy other firms at the rate of like two per month, you know, so they're constantly buying firms. I think at one point Facebook was doing it four per month or six per month or something. There's a Wikipedia page on like acquisitions of Facebook and buy Facebook and Google um, that chronicles all of these. And, um, and the other side would say, well, wait a second, we're siphoning innovation because, you know, we're channeling so much of AI resources into Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse. And imagine all the great engineers that are being sort of uh, bought into that. And what are the other fabulous AI things that aren't being done because this one dominant firm is able to exercise so much control and, and have so much influence. So I think that's a tough one. I mean, I, I feel like I in general am more on the latter camp, but I do realize that like, particularly say for healthcare AI, I would love to see more ability to integrate data. And, and it turns out that we can't integrate data except by having, say, um, very large healthcare chain, hospital chains um, developing to do that. Then I would be much more in favor of them, uh, say, than I would be in, in favor of data consolidation in other areas where the stakes are not as high. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. The point you were making about the stifling of innovation, because innovation is is related, you know, directly to creativity, innovation and creatives, whether they're engineers or artists or designers are all, you know, always future focused, always, always thinking about those uh, visions of the future and the idea of consolidating and, and this narrowing of the future into the metaverse or a future of all self-driving cars or whichever, you know, version of the universe where the road is getting steadily and steadily more narrow and thinking about Gates's metaphor of the web, if culture and, and time and all this are all thought of in this kind of metaphor, the number of threads upon which we can travel is getting, you know, less and less, um, which is not, not particularly hopeful. <laughs> Um, no, I think that's a really insightful application of that that webs of meaning. You know that idea that yeah, that persons are, are animals suspended in webs of significance they themselves have spun. I think your example of the webs and the, then the narrowing of the webs is a really terrific example. And I think that that would be one that I would be particularly um, interested in in thinking through further in terms of how um, when our imagination of say what is the most important next step in AI is being directed by someone. And, and I think you're mentioning the cars as, as well. And I, I know you've been working in that area as well, you know, in terms of thinking about autonomous vehicles and to think that, you know, you have uh, someone like Elon Musk and Tesla having, I mean, I think a really uh, cramped vision of what the future of transportation could look like versus say someone like Ben Green. Um, and, and I think his, uh, he had a recent book on the smart city that I think was really much wiser in that perspective, you know, it's 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 troubling to sort of think about how quickly public imagination can be captured um, by these mega projects. And 
I have to admit, I don't say much positive about Google or Amazon, but I, I guess I, I'm, I have to admit that like, I'm a little thankful that they at least don't seem to be going, you know, they don't, they don't have to have that sort of cultural weight in terms of like shifting people's uh, imaginations, although maybe I'm just overlooking some of their own uh, initiatives, but yeah. yeah. Although I guess the Ring camera would be a very good example of say a potential very non-emancipatory use of AI, so yeah. So I really enjoy these types of conversations because I like it when anthropology comes into conversation with other disciplines that are more future uh, facing because notoriously like its strength is is locality and specificity and deepness and thickness of descriptions and that all comes from that local knowledge which is is a particular you know, cake slice in time. But there is like emerging, you know, futures anthropology, design anthropology, ones that are more focused on on the future. And I know before you mentioned one of Gitz's contributions is talking about this kinship between law and anthropology. Um, so I know that that's something I would like to see anthropology bring to, sorry, I would like to see law bring to anthropology as more of a futures focus. What are some of the takeaways that you would like to see uh, humanities or anthropology focus in law? Yes, yes. And, and I might read that quote, if you don't mind, because I think it's, yeah. it's just such a fascinating quote from, uh, this is from Local Knowledge, which uh, I believe was uh, his uh, one of his stores lectures. And, and, and I think it's just a, a wonderful reflection on the nature of like law and anthropology and how they are similar. And the quote is, quote, between the skeletonization of fact, so as to narrow moral issues to the point where determinate rules can be employed to decide them, to my mind, the defining legal feature of legal process, and the schematization of social action so that its meaning can be construed in cultural terms, the defining feature also to my mind of ethnographic analysis, there is more than a passing family resemblance, right? N nice little quote uh, or a, um, evocation of Wittgenstein at the end of that uh, uh, <laughs> quote as well, right? I, I know it really influenced Gertz a lot. And I love this idea of like the skeletonization of facts so as to narrow moral issues so that determinate rules can be employed to decide them and, and, and describing that as law. Um, because in law school, oftentimes what happens is the facts section of the case, everybody ignores it, or they just skim over it. They're like, okay, okay, there's the facts, but now let's get to the law. But what he's saying is that essentially the whole, the whole game in a way is how did you describe things in the beginning so that the rules that you wanted to apply or the precedent you wanted to apply would actually apply, right? And I think there's something similar there, you know, when I think about like the, the, the schematization of social action so that its meaning can be construed in cultural terms, that I think is also really interesting, right? Like I, I had a very critical review once of a book by Arlie Hochschild called Strangers in Their Own Land. And I felt like she had schematized social action a certain way to have this very sort of like to, to try the, the, the billing of it was I'm going to understand, say, Trump supporters in a given part of the country. But I felt like this was a very biased schematization that I was very I didn't buy the schematization. It did, did, didn't ring true to me. And I had to review the book uh, to sort of question that schematization. And I think similarly that a lot of the effort in law is that a lot more effort in law should be focused on 
this question of like, how do we summarize facts? How do we summarize facts and sort of make certain things salient or not? Um, and, and to give another example here that I think is quite interesting, one of the commissioners who is in charge of antitrust in the U.S., um, Rebecca Slaughter-Kelly, it's great that we're going into an antitrust direction, but I think this is good because it's one of those areas where social science has, has played a very baleful role and could play a much more positive role in the future. Uh, one of the commissioners said, we need to really think about race and antitrust. We need to think about how, when we allow certain mergers, they're affecting people of uh, um, marginalized backgrounds, minoritized communities, et cetera. And there was a critic who said, this is the height of wokeness. This is the most horrifying thing. The thing that we could add race to antitrust, which is a purely economic, economic, scientific discipline. And she's trying to add race. But you know, to me, you can instantly counter that. And I think just prove it by saying, imagine you have, say, a city which has a predominantly a neighborhood that is predominantly minorities and another neighborhood that's um, predominantly the majority ethnicity and, and is very wealthy. And a hospital chain proposes to merge its current unit that's in the minority neighborhood into the larger, into the, in the unit that's in the majority one. Um, should we not think at all about the fact that essentially ambulance times and times to say the emergency room have now doubled, you know, potentially from that, that merger? I think we have to think about that, right? We have to think about the way that that is, uh, that in a law that was blind to that, a law that proposed, that set itself out um, as being a, a law of competition and fair competition and fair consolidation that didn't think about the, a dev say, potential devastation of a minority community by the move of a hospital um, and a merger of a hospital um, would be blind. And I think that, you know, in the same way, I, I sometimes see sociological or anthropological accounts of uh, certain phenomena where I say, well, they really seem blind to something. And so I think part of the effort of developing uh, a anthropological, humanistic, uh, humanities-informed law is the ability to recognize when these sorts of um, uh, blindnesses occur and to correct for them in the record and in the description of events and in what is seen as, and is what is done as, the, as what Geertz calls the skeletonization of fact, that isolation of the most important facts that are necessary in any given case. I really like that kind of metaphor of law kind of stripping the flesh off the skeleton and just kind of presenting what's, what's, <laughs> what's necessary um to to you know to tell a particular story because culture isn't in many ways just the telling of of stories and creation of meaning for a particular group um so yeah it, using anthropology and ethnography to enflesh uh law and make it a little bit more complex does make things messy and i think that's why it's very tempting to skip the facts and go straight to the the guts of the law um, and I, I find that working with, um, in another project, I'm working on net zero transitions. I'm working with transition managers who think in very uh, linear terms and plans and timelines. And we're bringing the anthropology into kind of not just ground what they're doing, transitioning to net zero, but to complicate it because people's lives are complicated. You can't just get everyone to switch to electric vehicles or no vehicles. It doesn't work like that. That really resonates with me, that, that idea. And I think that, you know, the, the idea of being able to understand sort of uh, what's going on in the lives of people making these decisions is so critical. And I think it, it has been left to the side in many areas. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, and when I think about how the Democrats have sort of lost West Virginia forever, it's sort of coal country, 
I don't know if there was ever a way out of that, but I think if there was a way out of it, it probably would have involved saying something like, here's, you know, here's the transition that we're going to uh, help assure for you, as opposed to saying, well, get some training and then maybe something will materialize for you. That's, that has not worked and has basically, you know, made it very, very difficult for there to be any sort of green appeal in, in West Virginia presently. Are there any future plans for you to create a course through teaching or a book around this humanities-focused uh, law? It's a great question. You know, I, I, right now, my ideas on this are so inchoate, you know, that I can't really plan, plan for any sort of book in the area. But what I do hope to do is I want to do a course on non-algorithmic thought. And this comes out of actually, I, I was presenting a paper a few years ago um, to some very smart colleagues at Brooklyn Law. Um, I remember many, just terrific colleagues here. And um, they were it was it was a critique of the use of cost benefit analysis and a critique of the use of automated or legal tech in certain areas to decide cases, et cetera. And I basically said, you know these these algorithms are really troubling. And then one of the commenters said, "Well, aren't you just proposing a counter algorithm? Like you're not really critiquing algorithms as such. You're just devising a way to do the algorithmic process better. And I think there's a role for that. But then I also wanted to say, isn't there also a place for non-algorithmic thought in law? And I think this could cover a number of issues. And, and one of them, I think, could be um, the type of interpretation that Geertz is describing, because so much of what he does is, I mean, I think the brilliance of much of that work is that he'll randomly sort of come up with like a quote from Hogarth or, or a painting from Hogarth. He'll compare what's going on to a painting from Hogarth and a passage from Wittgenstein and a passage in a sonata or something. And it's just like, you see the analogy, you see the metaphor, and it just is, it's so illuminating, right? And to be able to have that type of mind that brings together these various things is really helpful. But there's no algorithm to, to say, here's how you could do your own Geertzian essay, right? It's really hard to figure that out. I mean, and one of the things I might have to think about is there, so that has led me in turn to thinking about literary criticism and how literary canons are constructed and how even in the midst of contestation of the canon, there's still value to the idea of a canon that is constructed according to judgment that cannot be algorithmatized. It, it can be discussed. And, the, the, and, and another idea here that comes out of it is like, what if it turns out that in many political situations, we aren't trying to reason together towards some common reality, but that the real goal is to dis discover how far apart we are and why we're so apart. Right, that's another area where maybe that non-algorithmic thought could be useful. And finally, there's the role of emotion, right? Because a lot of times, like the the idea of thought is that we we contrast thought and emotion. And of course, one of the the greatest thinkers to to deconstruct that opposition was Martha Nussbaum and her work, um, um, uh, upheavals of thought, or describing um, um, emotions as upheavals of thought. And I think that, you know, I've been pursuing this a bit in my critiques of affective computing. I, I did a talk in, uh, at University of Queensland over the, uh, in July um, on, uh, called Five Critiques of Affective Computing that luckily is online. And I, 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 I really felt like I was getting at something there that I think was about the non-algorithmic and how the effort to algorithmatize emotion had so many problems and, and ways in which the technology was biting back on those who were using it. So out of that Farago, you know, that, that sort of just mix of melange of ideas, I think there's something there. I think there's something there. And I, I almost proposed this as a course for University of Toronto, where I'm, I'm doing a brief visit um, this, uh, this spring um, or in, in January, but I, I, I'm, I'm this winter, I should say, but I, I really do hope to develop it further into a, a, a course where 
we can think about what are the areas where we're doing something that is beyond caprice, preference, arbitrariness, where there is a wisdom to it, but it could not be put into algorithmic form in the series of an if and they then statements, right? If not and, like if it, the, the idea of the algorithm is like everything could be sort of boiled down into if X, then Y, if not X, then Z, if whatever, whatever. I think there's a lot of life that's very important that can never be boiled down into that. But that in law, we're really at risk of losing that way of thinking and valuing it. And so that's that's sort of a, a, a one of the the research areas I hope to go into. So yeah, I am so excited at the idea of this course. Um, and if you'd like to collaborate on it, I would be very keen to do that because I, I I think Great. it sounds absolutely, yeah, I think it sounds brilliant and and very very nece- uh, necessary. I would love the idea of um, bringing not just the affective but the embodied uh, like fleshy aspects of, of anthropology and, and, and ethnographic uh, research and, and and conceptual theoretical work to to law. I think that sounds like a, a very exciting and interventionist uh, approach which is something anthropology again doesn't do very often very much stays on the the edges of, of, of intervention um and that's why I think I'm drawn to to the um more innovative kind of sub-disciplines like design anthropology and futures anthropologies because they are deliberately interventionist but I just wanted to say like your your point about um when you mentioned like necessary and, and even messiness of it I mean there's the, there is that work I guess by John Law on mess in research or, or dealing with mess and I think that like that is interesting and then also, just to give a concrete example of the interventionist ethic or approach, I think of Kiara Bridges' work in the poverty of privacy rights, um, where she begins it with this very long interview um, or account of an interview um, with someone who's a recipient of benefits and all the questions that are asked and sort of the reflections on it. And I think just out of that very concentrated attention to an interaction of a person with a state, she develops a, a really terrific theory of privacy and its limits and its and the opportunities to develop in a more progressive way. So yeah, it's great. I love it. I think um, as a starting point for naming or, or the, the introduction to the course, we could draw on um, Gates and Law and Anthropology where he talks about law and ethnography as crafts of place. I've always loved talking about uh, ethnography as, as a craft, especially with my my early, early research on witchcraft, which is very much a craft of spirituality, uh, not so much as a religious practice. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, just 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 because I know we, um, we're running out of time and I think we should, this is a nice place to kind of finish off on. Um, how how do you think about your your work on, in law and technology, or do you think about your work in law and technology as as a craft that you're sort of honing? It's a, it's a wonderful question, and it is a good, it's a good way to to, and it's something I, one should reflect on more. Um, I the, the folks in general should reflect on more, and and I I do believe that it's important not to keep both to do the same thing and to and to and to practice makes perfect in a way, or if not makes perfect, at least it makes one uh, capable of doing something uh, with more of a sense of assurance and, and being informed and always balancing that with the sense that I want to do something new, you know, to, to have a new sense of, and, and to try something new and to try to learn from different collaborators. And I've, I've co-authored a lot because of that. I mean, co-authored with a professor of English and with a philosopher and with um, uh, a social theorist and, and, and others. 
um, because of this sort of idea that like, I wanna learn from others about how they see the world and how that can better inform uh, my representation of, of the world and my sort of action-oriented representations of the world. And I think sometimes in that uh, interdisciplinary conversation, it's like, I think I help others see a little bit more about the uh, different points of intervention where their understanding of the world could lead to a change in policy or a change in, in certain, uh, in people's conceptions of what's going on. And they help me see what are the standards of rigor necessary to make an authoritative pronouncement as to what's going on. And so I think that it is a craft. It is a craft that's ideally um, uh, honed with a community. And I've been really lucky to be teaching at law schools with um, some real masters of, of, of legal scholarship. And then also to be in contact with people outside of the legal academy who are um, always helping me develop a better sense or they they, they uh, are offering me resources that could help me develop a better sense of what is what are the bounds of the sayable and the knowable um, and uh, fair and accurate characterizations of the situation in the world. So that's, uh, that I think is, is yeah, I, I do view it as a, as a I mean, I, I guess I haven't self-consciously called it a craft, but now when you come to, when you describe it in that way, I think it's a very apt description, so thanks. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a really fabulous point for us to to finish. Thank you so yeah. much. Fantastic. Thank you. No, thank you. This has been absolutely brilliant. And Frank Pascal. Today's episode was produced by me, Emma Quilty, with help from my fellow Familiar Stranger, Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Stranger podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps to make us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the Familiar Strange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Fairley, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Mal Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.